The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So today continues a message series on how to be happy. It's the fourth in the fourth part of the five-part series. And I'll take you back to some of the baseline understandings of what animates, what really animates this message series. Tal Ben-Shahar, who some of you know, he teaches the most popular course at Harvard. And I've been at Harvard. Actually, I went to Yale Div, but there's sort of those friendly rivals there. And Harvard is not the happiest place in the world, I can tell you. Neither is Yale. Neither are most academic institutions. The most popular course at Harvard, because he teaches about happiness. Very simple, very powerful definition of what happiness really is. It's two things. The ability to experience pleasure and purpose. To know joy, also in the context of meaning. That is Tal Ben-Shahar's understanding, his definition of happiness. And so today's focus is about understanding happiness in the context of our most significant relationships. In our marriages, in our families, here in community. The important thing to understand about happiness first is getting beyond that mindset that happiness is just pleasure. Now Martin Seligman is, and now he teaches at UPenn, and he teaches about the study of what he calls positive psychology. They said for a long time the history of psychology was all about that 50% of life that was going wrong. He wanted to study the 50% of life in which people thrived. And so he's really the founder of that school of positive psychology. And he talks about the difference between gratifications and pleasures. Gratifications and pleasures and which one actually makes you more happy. And so he's done this exercise over and over again with his students until they're actually getting wise to what's going on. But he actually wanted to see what makes people more happy, a gratification or a pleasure. And so he said to his students one day, go out and have fun. Go out with your friends to a bar. Go out and see a concert. Go to a movie. But also do this as well sometime during your week. Go out and do something altruistic. Go out and give some money away. Go out and volunteer at a soup kitchen. Go out and help someone who is in need. And I want you to write about what your experiences were. And this was the effect. Fun stuff was obviously fun. But it was very, very fleeting. It was ephemeral. Almost as soon as the fun thing had ended, the enjoyment ended as well. And the really cool thing is that the altruistic stuff, the compassionate stuff, that's the stuff that had a global effect on the individual sense of happiness. When they did something altruistic, when they did something compassionate, it made them feel more appreciative of their life. It made them feel a sense of happiness that didn't diminish just after the gratification was over. It had this total effect on the person. See, that's the thing with gratifications and happiness. When we do something truly good, not something self-sacrificial, as some traditions would have you believe is the only way that you can do something good, when you do something good that really fills up your spirit, your happiness level will go up, and if you continue to do things like that, your happiness level will rise. It's the meaning of a gratification. I've told some of you in the past about a story I had just as I was leaving my previous ministry in South Florida in 2005, and it was like my third to last day there, and my mind, my heart was a mess. I was sad to leave and ready to go and ready to get started up here, and just, you know, everything was all over the place, all over the place. I talked last week about that monkey mind that each of us has, you know, that mind just hops around and hops around and hops around and hops around and can't stay settled down, can't stay at peace. 
I had, I had monkeys mind. I mean, all sorts of things. Like, like, if you go to the zoo and you see one monkey get upset, and then the rest of them get upset, and they're all screeching, that was my mind that day. And I was on the Gratney Parkway as a road in South Florida, and I was about to pay my toll, and I was just completely distracted. And then a really, really cool thing happened, some of you know about. The toll taker, and I was just like, I handed her the money without even looking at her. She said, how are you today, dear? <laughs> dear? I, I said, actually, I'm feeling a little bit, you know, frazzled, to be honest. And she said, I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, my gaze actually looked toward her, not just straight out at the path I was going on, but toward her. I was able to see her for a second. And she gave me my change. And she reached over, and she grabbed, like, my wrist, right here, near my hand, right on my arm. And she said, you take care of yourself today, honey. You take care of yourself today, honey. First time all day, probably the first time all week, I was actually able to settle down. Think about that gulf. I mean, think about what it must be like to sit in that booth, taking and making change all day long. Think about how so often people treat you as an it, as just an object to fulfill their means of getting to their desired location. That person, to a lot of people, is an afterthought. But she completely transformed that. That's what a gratification does, because she woke me up with her leaning across and actually touching me. I mean, talk about that gulf, you know, that gulf in economic transaction. Take my money, give me change, let me go on my way. She bridged that gulf by reaching out. And she did a great thing for me, but I want to tell you that she did an even better thing for herself. Imagine what it's like to sit in that booth all day and just make the change. And now imagine what it's like to be that woman and to make change, to practice gratification on a regular, regular basis. Now, she gave me a blessing, but I have to believe that what she was really doing was transforming her own world. She loved me before she knew me. She prepared a place in her heart before I even got there. What an amazing thing. You see, it was random to me, but for her it wasn't a random act of kindness at all. I have no doubt it was part of who and what she was as a human being. Now, part of my spiritual practice is, you know, buying people lunch and leaving $10 behind for me when I'm at the luncheonette or the diner or a restaurant and saying, you know what, to the person behind the counter, buy lunch, buy a meal for the next person who comes in. And they're surprised and the person is often shocked. So that's part of my spiritual practice is doing these random acts of kindness. Those are for strangers or guests. Closer to home, random acts of kindness, well... Maybe they don't quite get it done. Not the whole way, at least. In our relationships, our marriages, our families here in community, it's consistency that really matters. Showing up as a community of kindness on a regular, regular basis. Now, this past week, someone gave, put a little cartoon blurb from those things in the New Yorker on my door, and I wondered if they were telling me a message, because here it is. You can't see it, perhaps, too well. But it's a couple walking down the street, a little overexposed. And she's saying something to him, and it's this. It's just that your acts of kindness are so random. <laughs> it's just that your acts of kindness are so, so underlined and bolded, so random. See, that's what's a real necessity for happiness in our personal lives. 
in community and with the people we really cared about. It's all about cultivating presence and cultivating consistency that are necessary for true and deep and lasting happiness. It is about, as I talked about last week, about making up our minds to be happy, not when we are sad, saying, oh, just be happy and it's all okay. It's about composing our minds, preparing our minds in such a way and preparing our hearts in such a way so that we're able to be present when life is really there. We're able to be here now, in the words of that great 60s kind of book. John Spong, the former radical Episcopal bishop of Newark, talks about his time, two hours he takes every morning. Two hours. You can't do two hours, just try five minutes, try ten minutes. He talks about his time of prayer and meditation, not as time inward. He talks about it as time of preparation. He is preparing with his spiritual practice, practicing presence so that he can go and greet the day that is to come. Not so he enters the day all hurriedly and worriedly and worrying about all the things he's got to do, but preparing himself so that he can show up for life. Matthew Ricard, who was a Buddhist monk and also a neurologist. Actually, he's got a PhD in neurology. I'm not sure what that makes you, but he's really smart. He talks about inner freedom, which releases us from the shackles of conflictive emotions, is won only by minimizing obsessive self-absorption. A free, vast, and serene mind is far more likely to consider a distressing situation from an altruistic point of view than is a mind relentlessly beset by internal conflicts. That's why when someone says, or maybe you're saying yourself, I don't have the time for spiritual practice. That's selfish. That's selfish. That's time not spent on others. That's not right, folks. Time that you spend in spiritual practice is time that you are preparing yourself to be in the very midst of life so that you can be there when life calls upon you to be the fullest that you can be. It is not selfish. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. There's not this dividing line saying, there's the me that goes out and there's the me that stays in. Because finally what it's about is just me and just you. Just the you where you are. And I believe we all want to equip ourselves best to practice real presence to practice the opposite of monkey mind in our relationships so we actually can recognize these beautiful, amazing, challenging, wonderful, frustrating people that we're sharing our lives with and take stock of each other, really recognize each other, truly being there, not being distracted. And I've quoted you some statistics in the last couple weeks about the fact that even though material abundance, yes, is up in the last 30, 40 years, happiness is down and depression is up, it's really not all that surprising why that is. We're a distracted society. We have so many toys to play with. So many things that we can do. So many distractions that take us away from being present. Right here, right now, I'm not saying give up your iPod. You'd have to take mine out of my clutched hand. But, but, it is important to recognize that technology is a tool that can be used well and it can be used poorly. And when we're using it as a distraction, then we are not here now. And we're not there now when that there shows up in our lives. Now how I try to practice this in my own mind is what I call quieting the lawyer mind. Quieting the attorney mind. Now, for those of you who might be attorneys or no attorneys or have had attorneys, well maybe all of us do good work for us, I'm, some, you know, frankly attorneys are some of the best listeners I know, especially if they're really good because they know what their clients need and want. I'm talking about like that Al Pacino revved up, overacted, B-grade movie kind of courtroom drama kind of attorney. 
the kind of attorney who's always preparing, always thinking, always making arguments. Because I know this happens to some of you sometimes, that you're you know, talking, maybe it's to your spouse or business partner or someone you know or a friend. And you're saying, I'm listening. I'm listening. But that's what's going on in your mind. That cartoon balloon that no one else sees but you know. I'm preparing my rebuttal. That's what I'm talking about when we're talking about quieting the lawyer mind. The mind that can't be present. The mind that is always racing one step ahead. Understandably, sometimes the way it, you know, it's the way our world is. But really, what we're doing, if we're not able to be here and present in our relationships, one, we're not able to be happy. We are being distracted. But what we're also saying to the other person is that you don't matter. Even if you really, really do love that person, if you're not here with them in the moment, practicing full presence, what you're saying is, I'm sort of looking to trade up. It's like, you know, you ever go to a party? And I know I've done this before, and I've had it done to me, and it's not nice either way. But you go to that party, and you find someone to talk to for five minutes, like, okay, I don't have to be by myself in the corner here. But all the time you're talking to that person, you're looking out the corner of my eye. How can I trade up? How can I trade up? How can I, you know, maybe talk to a, a person that will raise my social standing? What we're saying to that person is, you don't matter. We're not listening. We're not there. We don't have full presence. And really what we're doing, when we're thinking with that, I'm trying to get my rebuttal in, is we're trying to practice the idea, which is a complete negation of what life actually gives us the opportunity to do. We want to get the last word. The last word in. You know, you ever say that in an argument when you're really furious to another person and you walk out and you say, you know, get the last word and close the door. There's an episode of Seinfeld where George is able to, in every conversation he wants to say, I'm getting the last word. He says, thank you, good night, and walks out of the room. George Costanza is not a model of mental health, by the way. Certainly not spiritual health. We never get the last word in life. I have never done a funeral or a memorial service about whom was said, "Ah, I really miss them. I love them. They always got the last word. (laughs) The point is, none of us will ever get the last word. And if you're the kind of person who lives a life in which you're always trying to get the last word, guess what? At your funeral memorial service, you ain't getting the last word. All those people there will be saying the last word about you. They will be thinking and saying things that maybe you did not let them say in the midst of your life. We never get the last word. So instead, what we should seek to do Instead of wanting last words, we should seek to speak words that last. Not last words, but words that last. Blessings, gratifications, joys, thank yous, gratitudes. So that we are really able to recognize the other people in our midst. These are gratifications. These are acts of belonging and keeping real presence. Now, Tal Ben-Shahar in his book called simply Happier, which I encourage you to get. It's really... Deceptively simple. There's some really good exercises in there that will help to raise your happiness level. He talks about true happiness in relationship is about this. It's the difference between being known and being validated. Now raise your hand if you want to be validated. Who doesn't? Come on. Who doesn't want to be validated? Who doesn't want to be told that they're good and fine and everything's going right and they're doing the best work? And it's a completely legitimate response. I raise my hand. There's a different call, a deeper call, in true, happy relationships, which is what Ben-Shahar calls being known, which is deeper than just being validated, which is important. But here's the rub. 
If what we want from our relationships is to be validated, primarily, then we will hide ourselves at times from being known. Because we will not share the selves that are not our best selves. We will not share the self that is needy, or the self that is broken, or the self that is vulnerable. Because we'll say, I can't even validate myself right now. How will you do that? That's the problem with shame. It's the big problem, the spiritual problem with shame. Just think about the affect of shame. The face is hid. The face can't see other faces. The face looks away. I am invalid. There's a deeper call on our relationships, which is being known, which is saying, yes, sometimes I'm a mess. <laughs> and when we can open ourselves in this way, to the people who really care about us, they will say, you're still accepted anyway, even if you're not valid in that moment. It's part, it's part of what makes for truly happy relationships. Paul, in the first letter to the Corinthians, if you've been at weddings over the years, no doubt you've heard this, love is kind, love is patient, love is not boastful, etc., etc., etc. You've heard it before. The problem with that is he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about a community. And he ends that with these words. And he's talking about the difference between being validated and being known. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then shall we see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. He's talking about happiness here talking about living a fulfilling life here. He's talking about recognizing our faces wherever they are can be shared. Now C.S. Lewis has a beautiful little book. It's not one of his most well-known ones. It's called Until We Have Faces. It's about his understanding of what heaven is. And everyone can share their true face with each other. Now he's C.S. Lewis, wonderful writer, Orthodox Christian. And so for him that was only a possibility, you know, in the other world. And I'd love to believe that's a beautiful representation of heaven, but do I know it exactly? No. Sounds perfect. Sounds pretty. But what I also believe is that we can experience this kind of heaven here, amongst each other. That we can share in this kind of divine, heavenly experience if we can commit and practice to being known and knowing one another. If we can get over the mind that says, I want to impress or be impressed, and say, I can love and be loved. I can know and be known. And this is much more than just pleasure in our relationships. Taking this seriously, practicing presence, practicing gratifications is all about the movement from pleasure to creation, from enjoyment to cultivation. This is the movement of all mature souls in life, is to go from that place of pleasure, which is important, yes, but into active engagement with the life that we possess, from just enjoying to actually committing to those things that give us pleasure and joy. Then we are gratified ourselves. That's why we celebrate membership here today. That's parts of what those of you who have joined have done. You have moved from that place of enjoying Wellsprings to committing to helping to cultivate it. Using your gratifications. Using your gifts. Using your lives to enter into a deeper and mutual relationship. And what I can tell you, I can promise you this, not moment to moment all the time, but everything, 
science tells us, even what the book of Ecclesiastes tells us. This is really cool. This is where evolution and ancient truth really are in cahoots with each other. They agree with the same thing. Evolutionary theory says that people who join together have an advantage over those who are on their own. The book of Ecclesiastes says this. When two join together, they can keep warm. And a three-fold cord is not easily broken. Not easily broken. When you practice altruism, when you engage in those practices of gratification on a regular basis, this I promise you, you will be happier. You will be happier. What's not to like about that? That is win-win rather than win-lose. Some of the other traditions talk about win-lose. You know, the, there's the sheep over here and the goats over here. We're universalists. It can be win-win. The things that make you truly and deeply happy can be the things that will also shape other people's lives in such meaningful ways. In such meaningful ways. And that's why we celebrate here today what membership means. And there's something we also discover on the other side of true happiness in relationship. Then in the midst of all this work we put into connection, and yes, it's work, the practice, presence, and showing up. There's also the other side of gratification, the root word, which is grace. That even at the end of all of our efforts, we can experience something that is beyond our efforts, where we are truly known and can know another person and people. This is what it's like to know the experience of grace. I'll tell you about a time in my life where I experienced this, and it didn't seem like it would be going that way in the start of the evening. This was after my first really horrible, miserable breakup in my romantic adult life. I mean, I had those teenage things, and those, oh, God, those hurt, and I wept and listened to a lot of music and wrote really bad poetry and on and on and on and on. But this was like the first really bad romantic adult breakup, and in some ways, frankly, is even more painful than my divorce from five, six years ago because I didn't have any way of understanding myself when I was 24. It also was a time in my life when I also was in the midst of a really, really serious and bad depression. And this was about a couple months after that, when I was just sort of starting to emerge and starting to be able to get back into the flow of life. And I was out with some friends for really the first time in months, just starting to sort of peek my head, like fill the groundhog, see if it was safe out there, I'm going to see me on Saturday, can I come out? And there was a friend of a friend of a friend who brought one of her friends. And you see me, I'm... Let's face it, I'm, I'm preppy, you know, sort of, you know, progressive preppy, but, you know, I'm preppy. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, you don't see, like, you, know, see, you don't see a lot of mattress on me, you know, you don't see, like, I'm not a country club preppy, but let's face it, look at me, come on, you got to be honest. And this was, to borrow the, uh, the language of an early 90s song, this friend of a friend of a friend who brought along a friend, this, this woman was um, a hippie chick. This is not normally the kind of woman who's attracted to me or I'm attracted to, but she was cool and kind of spiritual. And let's face it, folks, she wanted to talk to me. And who was I to refuse? <laughs> I was a mess. I was a basket case. I was just starting to come out of my hole. And so actually, we got to talking, and we talked for hours. Hours and hours. And this bar and closing time came, and she asked me if I wanted to take a walk. And I did. New York City. Hmm. 3 a.m. Not bad. So we found ourselves down by Gracie Mansion in the East River. It's a safe place to walk in New York City, 3 a.m., Gracie Mansion where the mayor lives. And we're standing there looking at the water, the East River run, and the lights of the Triborough Bridge. And my heart, do I kiss her? 
Do I not kiss her? Does she want me to kiss her? Do I make a move? Do I not make a move? Would she be offended if I made a move? Does my breath smell? Oh my God, I'm blowing it, I'm blowing it, I'm blowing it. <laughs> pure oversexed monkey mind right now. <laughs> pure, pure overwhelmed, overcome. <sighs> I'm blowing it, I'm blowing it. You're blowing it, Ken. You're losing your opportunity. And we're standing there, I'm saying, oh God, with each every second. She knows I'm a loser. She knows I've broken. Because, because when we were talking, by the way, I broke all those rules that they talk about in dating, all those rules of being, you know, diffident as a guy and not saying too much. I mean, I talked about my depression and I talked about the woman who broke in my heart and I laid it all out there. I'm saying, you screwed it up and you're going to screw this up right now. And while I'm, you know, having my monkey mind right there and not knowing at all what to do and completely chained by my worry and my anxiety and saying, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? Standing there, it was wintertime, both our hands were in gloves and she just reached over and took my hand and gave it a squeeze. <sighs> All that sexual tension was gone. And we just stood there in the silence another half hour just looking at the river run. The river that was calm and peaceful <laughs> like I was not <laughs> but now was. Then the time came almost as the sun was coming up Say goodbye and good night. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen her since. I don't even remember her name. But I do remember the experience. The experience of grace. When another person reaches out to us, knowing that we are a mess. Knowing that we're not feeling quite valid. Knowing that maybe we're not at our best. But that she was a vehicle for me for this kind of grace. A reminder that there was connection, that there was belonging in life, and that I could start to get myself perhaps back into shape. That even feeling myself invalid, still knowing me wasn't such a bad thing. And there started some of that recovery that night. We can be that to each other. I see some of you are holding each other's hands right now. We can be that to and for and with each other in this life that taste of heaven and divinity and grace that reminds us that although life can be difficult happiness is not a mirage it takes work but it also takes the ability to be receptive to receive grace to receive blessing so right now I want to ask you to take the hands all the hands closest to you Yeah, move around if you have to. That's all right. Feel this connection. Feel the power of the hands holding your hands. Hands that are known and beloved and hands that perhaps you don't know so well. Feel the power and the charge of hands holding one another. And listen to these words. Listen to these words from probably the most powerful sermon I have ever heard, ever read in my entire life from Paul Tillich. The great academic and a really screwed up guy. But he said, you are accepted. You are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later 
you will do much. Do not seek for anything, do not perform anything, do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. So folks, simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Allow life to share its grace with you. Allow these people to share their grace with you. And know that you are loved. Amen. May you live in blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org.